Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is our And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Being John Malkovich, part two of our Mount Rushmore asterisk uh, arc. Yeah, certainly be an asterisk on that, but uh, hello and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always in this wintry economic climate by <laughs> my friend and cohort Julio. Julio, we've come once again to... A Cameron Diaz film. This time, I think we're going to be looking at a bit more of a, you know, at least based on reviews, a positive side of her career. No musical numbers here for her. Nope, sadly. And uh, this being several years removed from The Mask, and she's obviously not like the pinnacle of white girl hotness in this, I don't think intentionally. You know, she's got the the Kathy hair and, you know, she raises animals and whatnot. But, uh, you know, Cameron Diaz, in a way, we're not really used to seeing her being in an art house film. Yeah, swinging for the fences. This is early in her career before she, uh, you know, there's the, th- the three stages in Cameron Diaz's career. Uh, part one, The Mask, where she just like breaks in and everybody's like, oh my God, what's she going to do? And they start casting her as like the hot young woman. Part two, being John Malkovich. <laughs> She takes a turn and tries to tries to win an Oscar. Uh, this probably ends around the time that Gangs of New York comes out. And she's like, okay, it's not going to happen. I got nominated and I didn't win. So part three, just dumb sex comedies. And then I guess part four, the epilogue is her retiring when she's like, I don't know, in her mid-30s. It's pretty mind-blowing to me that this is just a one year removed from uh, Very Bad Things, which you know, I've been complimentary of her in that. and. It's those are like two of those movies we talk about. Sometimes it doesn't feel like they exist in the same time frame, but so be it. Uh, Spike Jones not making his Contrarians debut, but uh, behind the camera for a film we're covering here, showing up for the first time. And Charlie Kaufman, I mean the peak of white people movie writing in this this man here. <laughs> I think we'll talk a little bit more about that in the second half of the podcast, because I know, uh, at least for my co-host, uh, he penned one of his favorite movies. And this was his first, and it was also Spike Jones's first, and what a way to begin. It's a, a fascinating journey we go on here in this fucking ego trip for John Malkovich. And also, <laughs> like, and not an ego trip, it's more of like a weird stalker fan letter to him. Because Charlie Kaufman, you know, wrote this specific, you know, it's not like 
um Tarantino writing pulp fiction for Travolta like I had this idea for this really fucking cool character that can save this guy's career uh, or revive it, excuse me. And in this case, John Malkovich was doing fine. It's just Charlie Kaufman was fucking obsessed with him and just wrote this movie about him and where all these characters like fawn over him and strive, uh, strive to be him. You think it was kind of weird when Malkovich read the script the first time? I Do you think he was flattered or was he worried? I wonder if he had like a heavy with him on, on set at all times, just in case something <laughs> went wrong. I'm going to ignore all the red flags just because this could get me an Oscar. Is this is this our first Malkovich in on the main feed? Because I know we just had him on the Patreon for uh, yeah. Patreon's liaisons. I think there's a pr- uh, production still in this from that movie, too. Yes, yes, there is. And then, of course, John Cusack is returning. Let's not forget we did Bullets of Broadway a long time ago. That's right, many moons ago. I it looked yeah, a this- little cleaner in that one. Oh, yeah, he's a disheveled mess in this. Uh, I think it might be the first Malkovich on the main feed. Wild. Everybody gets their turn. He's done like a thousand movies, so it's surprising we haven't come across one yet. Meanwhile, I think we've done like seven Ben Afflecks so far. (laughs) I mean, why not? I didn't realize John Malkovich was one of the voices in the um, Zemeckis Beowulf. Just going through his filmography right now. Who is he? Uh, so I know he's not Beowulf. Unferth. Yeah, Beowulf. That's my fault for asking. Like I would recognize <laughs> any of the names. He's not Beowulf. He's not Grendel, and he's not Naked Angelina Jolie. So kind of narrows it down. <laughs> he is Malkovich. Oh my god, I forgot he was in Jonah Hex. All right, we'll get to we'll get to <laughs> Malkovich and his exploits in the second half. But uh, we got to get to the lecture at hand here. If this is your first time tuning into the Contrarians, thank you so much for doing so. Um, for our returning listeners, thank you all the same. Give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do to any and all new listeners. Here on the Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. We'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. A lot of times known as certified fresh. And what we'll do is spend the first portion of our podcast kind of arguing against that rating, uh, calling out, you know, kind of unnecessary storytelling aspects, uh, poor writing, questionable direction, bad score, uh, performances that aren't all that are cracked up to be, Uh, you know, just trying to say that, hey, maybe this high rating these critics gave it isn't, you know, necessarily indicative of every part of this film. And conversely, on alternating episodes, we'll find a film on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten. Uh, We typically shoot for about 30% and below, and as you could guess, we'll build that film up, talk about the positive merit in it, maybe underrated uh, direction, storytelling choices, score, acting, wardrobing, sets, whatever it takes to beef it up and make it seem presentable, Uh, all in an effort to want puppetry, (laughs) all in an effort to number one, uh, we kind of talk about this all the time and we have before we even started doing this the rotten tomato system is uniquely flawed in that those ratings don't always tell the whole story and also uh, you know too you can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical about something as you want to be if you really set your mind to it Uh, but that all comprises the first half part one of our episodes which we call contrarians corner julio if our listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing they just have to tune into the the second half part two that is correct part two of every episode aptly called real talk that's where we tell you how we really feel it doesn't matter what the run tomato score is all that matters is our true feelings. How did we experience a movie, regardless of its score, regardless of the gimmick? This is just us 
being honest with each other. Uh, Alex, we've talked a lot about Spike Jones throughout the run of this show. Uh, I don't think that we've talked about being John Malkovich a whole lot, maybe at all, even though it's a movie that I have seen repeatedly. Uh, and I don't know, I guess you have to. There's, there's no way that you've only seen it once. Uh, I realized today watching it, this is one of those movies I only ever watched once in college because there was like a lot of it I retained, but certain aspects of it that just I completely forgot about. It was, um, you know, talking of Charlie Kaufman, the Synecdoche, Synec- we have my buddies who always call it Sindoche as like a joke just amongst <laughs> us. I think I've called it that on this podcast before. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Synecdoche, not to be confused with Schenectady, New York. Uh, it was like that um, adaptation, being John Malkovich, and there was like a rotating circle we had where we would like you know think we're intellectual for watching these movies. So I remember watching it. Um, I was surprised at how much I retained because those other ones I just was like yeah whatever. Um, so this was my second time, my my first time as a full fledged tax paying adult. <laughs> Well, it's my first time in at least 10 years, maybe more. So uh, it'll be an interesting conversation once we get to real talk. And I I, I will tell you my full history with this movie because I have a little bit of a journey with it. But before that, I mean, this is 94%. It's up there with the with the freshest movies we've done. Uh, who, who do these guys think they are? <laughs> it's Spike Jonze, Charlie Kaufman taking the world by storm, allegedly. We're going to, we're going we're gonna to, Take them down a peg, a few pegs. Them and Malkovich too. We're gonna be negative about this movie during Contrarian's Corner. Yes, we are. I mean, they, these two fuckers. Spike Jones has such a strange career because he gives, he gave so much hope and like um, motivation and promise to nerdy art house kids, white kids that could you know craft these odd movies or in you know one case like this experimental adaptation of a childhood tale. And then he also inspired a whole generation of mostly just dumb burnout white kids to record themselves doing dumb shit on camera because, you know, <laughs> Johnny Knoxville and uh, Bam Margera and Chris Pontius and the whole gang succeeded. And I mean, if you look at Johnny Knoxville, then that's a success story. That's the American success story right there. <laughs> and that's largely because um, Spike Jones helped uh, Jeff Tremaine and bankrolled the project. But... Spike, um, I always forget, was married to Sofia Coppola. I think I called that out also in our Moneyball episode. Just like what a power couple that would have been. Um, We're going back, though, before the days of Jackass. I mean, Big Brother and some of the other projects were already well established and underway. But we're going back to October of 1999, October 29th of 1999, with being John Malkovich. Again, just for posterity, directed by Spike Jones, written by uh, Charlie Kaufman, produced by Michael Stipe. Did you catch that? I did, and I'm like, are there two people named Michael Stipe in the world? <laughs> that was my. F- that was my first thought. It, according to the what I read, it's not. It's REM Michael Stipe. I guess Stipe looks a little bit like Malkovich. Malkovich looks a little bit like Stipe. Yeah, maybe the first draft was uh, being Michael Stipe. <laughs> And then they just realized, like, you can only talk about losing my religion for so long. <laughs> yes. When uh, 90% of the meetings started with somebody saying, so who is Michael Stipe? <laughs> Play me something from inside Michael Stipe. Uh, starring John Cusack, Cameron Diaz, Catherine Keener, Orson Bean, Mary Kay Place, and, of course, 
the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour, John Malkovich. And it ended up being nominated for three Academy Awards. I did not recall that Spike Jones got nominated for Best Director. So fucking what of a hell of a first time at bat. Um, Catherine Keener for Best Supporting Actress and old Charlie Kaufman for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, Meanwhile, Malkovich, who just let people make fun of him for two hours. Nothing. Not even a thank you. Didn't even attend the event. He was like, fuck this. <laughs> fuck this. I'm not going. I can't do a John Malkovich. <laughs> You've done it before, and I've enjoyed it very much. So thank you for attempting again. I will see you in court. Uh, 94%. So Julio hit us with the, the critical consensus, or at least what these these Rotten Tomato journalists are telling us. All right, a few fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. We're going to start with Matt Brunson from Creative Loafing, who says, Playing by its own rules every step of the way, being John Malkovich is clearly the sort of movie that needs to be made more often. Does it, though? I mean, I, I would think that the second time around, it just doesn't feel the same way. There's, like, you want to talk about a movie, there would be no legs for a sequel. Like, right. what, what, are you, what are you going to do? Being John Cusack. <laughs> The prequel. I mean, the ending for this is fucking terrifying, and I guess in a way sets up a sequel, but in no being way Charlie would I want to. No, being Emily, the little girl. <laughs> well, yeah, Charlie Sheen in being Emily. <laughs> I mean, by now, no, you have to. It, it couldn't be a sequel. It would just have to be like a, a reboot, reimagining, um, and you gender swap it. So it'd be like being Melissa McCarthy or something <sighs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alex, we'll do what actress you like. No, I just it wasn't Melissa McCarthy. It was just the idea of like because that you put that thought in my head, and it's like I'm sure someone's tried to do that, and like let's remake being John Malkovich. I mean, why not? <laughs> um, I think before we move on to the next quote, uh, I forgot to call out for those of you who missed the decided to skip our Bone Collector episode. The reason we're doing this, and the reason we we had that. Mount Rushmore gag is just because uh, we're, we're paying off a promise that we made last year during the live stream for The Cure. Look, if you want the full story, listen to the Bone Collector episode. But just so you all know, this is our Cameron Diaz entry. Uh, and believe me, Alex, I looked for quotes that mentioned Cameron Diaz, but it looks like the critics were more interested in talking about Spike Jones and Malkovich and Kaufman and not so much about Cameron Diaz, who uh, I think is just as important in this movie as all the other people in it. Regardless, quote number two from Lee Pash from the Herald Sun, Australia, says, The intense invention and creativity at work in this extraordinary movie is overwhelming. And I half agree with Lee here because I felt overwhelmed by quirkiness. Did you, did you feel like like did you feel like the quirks were just just weighing you down while you were watching this? it's so quickly is like just when he gets off the elevator and the floors like the ceilings low i was just like uh and you know by the third act i was just like i'm i'm annoyed i'm done (laughs) the the monkey flashback didn't uh didn't break you oh i forgot about that no It, it was when they explained like why they need john malkovich so all those old people can stay alive forever and it got like way too complicated i was just like i'm bored at least, like, a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan has the balls to make his entire movie confusing in the case of Inception or something. Don't, like, 
butter me up and then at the end just you know send me six thousand directions next armand white the infamous armand oh, white no you know you're in trouble when armand white gives you a fresh tomato uh, from the new york press and he says for two hours it works like the best music videos making high concept philosophies graspable marvelous and fun i didn't know graspable was a word but according to armand white it is god that fucking guy <laughs> I I don't know if we've quoted Armand White before on this show, but uh, for sure we've done it now. <laughs> There's no going back. That was yeah, that was groundbreaking right there. Uh, I yeah, I mean that's obviously something Spike Jones got his feet wet with his music videos. He started in 1992 and directed a whole hell of a lot, even up till just recent years. He directed uh, looks like in 2019 directed one for Karen O. And, uh, of course, that's what Armin White takes away from something like this. <laughs> We're going to close this quote, Alex, I picked just for you. Uh, Ed Gonzalez from Slam Magazine says, Ribald Kafkaesque romp being John Malkovich contemplates the nature of sexual identity and celebrity with a surrealist stick that owes plenty to Buñuel and Svankmajer. <laughs> All right. I'm annoyed. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know who Kafkaesque is. <laughs> uh, there's this wrestler named Trent Beretta. He's kind of an idiot, but I remember when um, he had one of my favorite tweets of all time where when Joker came out, it, whoever was writing for Rolling Stone at the time, their review of it said uh, the, the sentence was, um, fuck, it was like Phoenix is uh, uh, an inferno of unrelenting it or unleashed it or it was something like that and Trent Beretta quote tweeted it and like highlighted that sentence and he said lol fuck right off <laughs> and that's how I hear, feel sometimes when I hear shit like that you need to you know show your intelligence level from time to time I understand that and you need to be able to say hey I know these things from the past and like where this shit comes from that's fine the problem is these motherfuckers don't know how to write that in a way that doesn't sound extremely condescending yeah it's that's when you're the main objective behind your writing is to show off instead of actually communicating what you think of the movie accurate so, yeah sorry sorry buddy uh i don't know if you're still writing for a slang magazine but hopefully you've learned to tone it down by now <laughs> but that's it for quotes alex let's go into contrarian's corner Laddie, we've been over this nobody's looking for a puppeteer in today's wintry economic climate Right away, our lead, John Cusack, Craig Schwartz, is a puppeteer, a, I guess a struggling artist. And, you know, they're in New York City. He performs on the streets for fucking pocket change. And he says that his wife, who's played by Cameron Diaz, Lottie Schwartz, tells him to get a job. And he said it's hard for a puppeteer. I can't remember the whole sentence, but he does say wintry economic climate. And I, I put that. Then my notes, I thought that was really good. Uh, he's my my all- first note, Alex, is you can see the strings. And that is meant to encapsulate why. I, I think that puppetry had a time and place in the world, but that time and place is long gone. And it was long gone already when this movie came out. Um, you know, we've advanced in technology and storytelling to a point where it's like, why would you use puppets <laughs> to, unless you're a... Uh, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, you have no business reviving this archaic uh, form of entertainment. I mean, there's nothing that John Cusack doesn't do here that you couldn't do with a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it creates a barrier between myself and the main character that I'm supposed to be following in this movie. Uh, I know you're more of a practical effects kind of guy, but surely you you found this also a little uh, separated from reality. Yeah, I mean, it's what I said. It's what, you know, think of any meme you can that stresses like the apex of something. This is like the Charlie Kaufman just lives to write the pinnacle of white people shit. And there's nothing whiter than an unemployed puppeteer living in New York city. That's married (laughs) to a woman who just has like a monkey and (laughs) numerous birds and shit. It's just ridiculous. And I love the Wikipedia thing here. Craig Schwartz is an unemployed puppeteer in New York city and a forlorn marriage with his pet obsessed wife, Lottie. Uh, he finds work as a file clerk for the eccentric Dr. Lester in the Merlin Flemmer building on a floor between the seventh and eighth where the ceiling is very low. That sentence right there. And I'm sorry if you, uh, there may be someone listening to this. that's never seen a Charlie Kaufman movie before or a Spike Jones movie. Um, I'm a big fan of some of Spike Jones's work. Charlie Kaufman, you know what you're getting. And to his credit, he writes what he knows. And that's just really What's the word I'm looking for? Eccentric white people shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not even accessible white people shit. So Cameron Diaz is the reason we're here. And she's, this is definitely unlike any Diaz you've seen before. She's got the, like I said, the Kathy cartoon strip. She's got that big poofy hair and, uh, you know, no very erratic. It's, it's an odd thing, man, to watch Cameron Diaz back in these days where she, you know, was like, oh, I, I need to try. And we were really close to fucking Charlie's Angels and her becoming, you know, the rom-com hottie. And so it's a fascinating window in time to see her in this. Well, it's also kind of silly. Like, I applaud Cameron Diaz for taking the the chance of trying something different. But I also feel like there was no way they were – because the whole point is that they're trying to make her look – you know, in quotations, average, right? That's the mm-hmm. whole point. They're trying to to make her look like just a regular person. So, you know, she has the poofy hair and no makeup and she dresses kind of like a slob. But in the end, it's still Cameron Diaz, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I still, I see her and they do the same with Cusack. But the thing is like with a dude, it's, I think that it's easier to buy. Like I can smell John Cusack when I'm watching this movie. He just looks like... He looks he looks like I feel after I've eaten Taco Bell. It's just like nasty and gross and just you don't even want to move. And Cameron Diaz, okay, so she doesn't look as put together as she usually does, but she's still a very attractive woman. So oh, yeah. I it, and they don't even you know, she has the pets, but they didn't have kids to where you would say, okay, they stay together for the kids. I just don't understand why she stays in this relationship. He doesn't even have a job. And she has a monkey. I just have a note that says there's a monkey exclamation point. And yeah, he goes out and performs on the streets. He gets decked in the face because is it the scarlet letter that he's doing when he's oh, is that what he's doing? <laughs> it, I, I was not sure, but I was thinking that could have been what it was. But uh, yeah, he, you know, it's an erotic tale. And this guy sees he's making these puppets fuck or, you know, mime fucking. And so he pops him in the mouth. So anyway, he goes home and. As we said, he ends up with this job. First and foremost, I need to call out when he opens the newspaper to find this job listing. He opens up and there's a big full page uh, story on, I believe it said OzFest, but 
the fucking picture they have that takes up half the page is Cold Chamber. And seeing Cold Chamber, I was like, yep, this is like the most 1990 thing possible right now. Uh, Cold Chamber Julio was a new metal band. I mean, they were around in like the mid 90s, but like their apex was um, 99 to that, like the fucking corn limp biscuit when all that shit kid rock was really taken off that new metal thing and yes i absolutely had two of their cds as uh <laughs> i guess preteen teen at the time what was it it was chamber music chamber music yes that was the one i had and they were like you know you can just see from the the screenshot i said uh, posted which is now on our twitter account like you know the fucking eyeliner and shit but they had a they had a chick playing the band they had a girl bassist so that was fucking <laughs> badass the point being here i don't know of like the only way this particular shot of john cusack in this movie opening the paper to a full page spread with a picture of cole chamber could have been more 1999 is if on the bottom of the page or in the page next to it, there was an ad for the release of the Sega Dreamcast on September 9th of 1999. That's the only way it could have been. Or an ad for the McDonald's salad shakers. I think that was 99. <laughs> but okay, so we can we can assume that Spike Jones is a is a fan of uh what are they called? Cold miners? Cold <laughs> chamber. So he answers this ad, Julio, and he goes in for a job interview for a filing clerk. And so far, we're kind of quirky. We're having a little bit of fun. <laughs> and we just go off the fucking rails here because uh, he goes and he sees that the office he's going to is on the seventh and a half floor, gets in the elevator, sees there's no seventh and a half floor button. And who else but Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 <laughs> Octavia Spencer appears with a fucking iron rod and helps him out with this. What a wild appearance by this young she would have been a young woman at this point. It underscores the fact that unless I'm mistaken, there are no other black characters in the movie. And she's there only for a minute. Gee, you think? <laughs> she she was invited to stick around and she's like, nope. <laughs> this this is not my scene. My next note just says, God, this is so Spike Jones slash uh, Charlie Kaufman. Because, yeah, he comes out, the ceiling's low, and he goes and meets the secretary, Florence, here. And her quirk is she doesn't understand. She has, like, a, a hearing problem because she doesn't really understand what anyone's saying to her. Mary Kay Place. Uh, is that funny to you, Julio? Do you find the comedy in this that it so desires to deliver? It's kind of like the opposite of that whole thing of, uh, oh, something that starts funny then it stops being funny and then if you keep repeating it, it gets funnier in this case it's just like it's not funny to begin with and the longer it goes on it gets unfunnier because they run it to the ground it's like it, it, th that joke starts in this sequence in this scene and then it continues when he goes in for the interview <laughs> at some point you're like can we we get it she doesn't understand what people are saying it's uh, no I don't find it funny I think that Here's my thought. I know John Cusack is a good actor. And I, John, I know John Cusack can be funny. But you have to give him something to play off of. And there's this setup is too much quirk and not enough jokes. That's, that's how I feel. Uh, Mary Kay Place, uh, as with all things important, it always comes back to undeclared. 
and she <laughs> was on an episode of that. She was on the episode Parents Weekend. She played like a really uh, prodding and non-trusting Christian woman that tore their dorm room apart looking for drugs and condoms and whatnot. And hilarity ensued, much unlike her character here. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. So Craig goes into his interview with Dr. Lester, played by Orson Bean. Julio, you know, Bean from much else. Uh, was he in Undeclared? Was he someone's <laughs> dad? <laughs> he was married to Mary Kay Place in uh, Undeclared. <laughs> uh, he was not. Looks like a, he was a prominent television actor. His film credits are not too expansive. That's why I was curious if you had seen anything else. He strikes it. me as the kind of guy you get when you can't get John Mahoney, which I guess now you can't get John Mahoney. So maybe Dr. Lester is getting a lot more auditions. So Julio, explain to me what happens here. You know what? Just take the rest of like this first day at the office away because he, he gets the job on the spot and then goes to orientation. <laughs> it's uh, well, the, the main thing, the main takeaway here is that he meets Catherine Keener. You know, he goes to orientation. He watches this video. He gets the job, of course, and uh, I guess there's a correlation between being a puppeteer and being really good at filing stuff. Fast hands. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Gotta take Spike Jonze's word for it, but he meets Catherine Keener here. How do you feel about Catherine Keener playing this type of character? Because I am used to gentle Catherine Keener, Um, you know, the woman that... Falls in love with Steve Carell in the Forty Year Old Virgin. That's that's a Catherine Keener that I that I like. And then here she is, cold hearted and manipulative and backstabber. And I'm not saying that she doesn't play it well because she does, but it was just so off putting. And I I don't know what because you know jumping ahead to the very end, she gets a happy ending, and that made me feel like. The movie maybe like I was supposed to like her more because uh, we get to the end and she's you know she has a family. I don't know that she deserves it. So how how do you feel about Catherine Keener here? Well, you clearly have not seen Hamlet too. She's a fucking monster in that movie. She's like <laughs> huge bitch. Uh, Is she? So oh yeah, dude, y- you've seen it once, right? Is that right? Yeah, I remember yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Shue. And- oh no, Ka- Catherine Keener's very. She's a very bad person in that movie, but. Uh, <laughs> Here, yeah, that's kind of the thing of what you said. I think a 40-year-old virgin or just kind of uh, other fun stuff or the skin-crawlingly awkward scenes and um, enough said with her. Uh, it's <laughs> it's weird for her to be like the Sharon Stone in this, you know, the, the siren on the water type. And then also, it is odd. Like, none of her intentions are good at any point in this movie, yet she gets the happy ending. You're right. Yep. Uh well, we'll get to it because I, I think that the movie takes kind of a cheats in order to redeem her. It's kind of like she's she's a horrible person, and then fast forward seven months, and suddenly she's we're supposed to like her now. Um, but we'll get there. The, the thing is, when you see her here, and John Cusack is fawning over her, and she treats him terribly, uh, it's not like I'm rooting for these two to get together or anything, uh, but. It also diminishes him as as a person because, uh, you know, we know he's married. He has a wife, and I I just find myself kind of adrift. Uh, who who am I supposed to be rooting for here? What who who is my 
my guy? Who's my my girl? Who who am I identifying with? I guess it has to be uh, Lottie, like the the Cameron Diaz character, but she's so they're also removed from reality that I just I, I have a hard time kind of like centering myself and being able to get invested in the story. I just I don't care about what happens to any of these people. So when Cusack goes back home and he's obsessed with a. Uh, with Catherine Keener, and he starts like lying to uh, uh, Cameron Diaz about her. I mean, it's just, uh, I, I don't care how these relationships turn out. Were you invested in anybody? No. no. Not even Dr. Lester and his <laughs> uh, sexual fantasies? Well, at first, I thought he was like Cochran in Halloween 3. Like, it was like, oh man, he's going to kill all the children in the world. Like, what's going on here? Because, <laughs> like, the operation he was doing didn't really make sense, but it quickly, it doesn't need to. It quickly, like, dissipates and. Fucking Flores is super horny for John Cusack and all this shit. And I was just, you know, I was wanting Octavia Spencer to come back is basically what I was thinking the whole time. When we get to John uh, Malkovich, I was having fun with some of that. But as far as like the the leads here, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not wrong, right? Like Cusack is a creep in this movie. Yeah. Like he, <laughs> he he's the worst. <laughs> when he goes on his date, you know, jumping ahead here, he goes on his date with Catherine Keener and she sees his ring and says are you married and he goes well enough about me it's like it's this movie's not from you know this isn't fucking revolutionary road or the ice storm like you know it wasn't back in the days where that's just kind of what happens I mean this is the women had power at this point you shouldn't be fucking dicking them around and playing with them like that so I uh I found the tone to be odd I mean they kind of flip it on its head with the atmosphere being like the women uh are sexually inappropriate towards the men in the office. Like I just mentioned with Mary Kay place where she, she has the admittedly awesome line of like, I need you to file me. And remember I comes before you. I was like, all right, <laughs> you done, you done good Kaufman way to go. Uh, but, th- but that's the problem, right? Because if you're talking about how this movie is made at the time where, well, the sexual revolution has kind of happened. And so now women go to work and women hold power. And of course, yeah, it's, there's still, there's not, you know, it's still an imbalance of power, but, but still like the the whole point is Catherine Keener is there and she, she holds all the cards, but at the same time, you're making her one of the most despicable characters in the movie. (laughs) So what are you saying? (laughs) Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, yeah, they, they all suck. And, and it is, the movie's called being John Malkovich and I timed it. It's 30 minutes before we get to John Malkovich. And it's 30 minutes of quirky bullshit. <laughs> Maxine, we learn is her name. They go on a date. Uh, it, one of the actual you know, laughs I had in it was she asked what he does. And he says he's a puppeteer. And she goes, check. And that's just the end of it. Like it cuts <laughs> to the next scene. Um, he's becoming obsessed with her. But then through work, he finds just behind this filing cabinet. Uh, you know, this is such like in a seven, you know, back to the seventies and eighties, like that type of thing. That's such what this plot is. He like drops a post-it behind it. So he moves his filing cabinet and there's this portal back there that he crawls into and it takes him to the forbidden land. Only in this case, the forbidden land is the brain of John Malkovich. So we are now in the head of John Malkovich for a very short period of time. We see him eating his breakfast, walking around and uh, just as quick as he's there, he's transported out. And I guess when you're done and, you get about 15 minutes, I think is what they say. And when yep. you're done and uh, Mr. Malkovich's brain, it spits you out by the New Jersey turnpike. And um, not to be funny or morbid, but timestamp, uh, this has a really good shot of the World Trade Centers in the background here. 
Oh, I didn't notice. Uh, well, I, I was probably too distracted by how uh, disappointing, I guess, uh, was the real John Malkovich. Like I said, we recently just saw him in this fiery performance in Dangerous Liaisons. And here we get to see what what Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones perceive his real life to be. And I guess Malkovich doesn't disagree because, you know, he's part of the movie. And uh, it's pretty boring. <laughs> Were you disappointed when we finally get to see John Malkovich? And he's just he's just living a very uh, he's just chilling. life. Yeah, there's nothing exciting going on. I don't understand why anybody would want to spend 15 minutes in his head. Yeah, John, uh, what is, uh, John, uh, uh, ah, don't tell me, uh, Maplethorpe? Malkovich. Malkovich, right, right, okay. This is the part of the movie that becomes strange, because it's immediately like, oh my god, it's, you know, it's like Beatlemania type shit. For some of these people, because there is the hilarious part of him explaining to Catherine Keener that I was in John Malkovich's head. And she goes, who's John Malkovich? Uh, Did you recognize the first customer that they have, by the way? No. Who was that? The, but you know who I'm talking about, right? Like the guy that's like, I'm fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're my friends. Like he hugged John Cusack afterwards. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Contrarian's favorite, W. Earl Brown. Oh, is that the dude from uh, Lost Souls? Yep. <laughs> disappointed that, that I remembered that, that. The guy that breaks that that person's neck. Uh, also, he's in There's Something About Mary, where he plays Cameron Diaz's brother. You know, have you seen my baseball? That's him? That is him. Wow. What a career that young man's had. Yeah. So, wait. Uh, is that before or after this? Something about Mary would have been... 98. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so we, we missed out on a big part of the Diaz uh, story, as it were, here. Because, God, you weren't in America yet, but that movie took over the fucking world. That was like all anyone was talking about. And that was the summer of 98. The fucking nerve, the Fairley Brothers. That movie is two hours and ten minutes long. Uh, <laughs> I've seen it once in my life, but I do remember uh, yet affirming here, looking at the poster, Cameron Diaz got top billing, and that was the one that kind of launched her into a bit of a different stratosphere. I, in my mind, my mind's eye, I think it's um, very bad things, but you know, some people would argue with me on that. So no, anyway. There's something about Mary happened, and then she could do anything she wanted, and W.O. Brown, they were on <laughs> set, I guess, and she had, he had yes. mentioned this weird <laughs> movie that he was auditioning for <laughs> she drove him to the audition <laughs> all right well i did not catch that was our our boy w earl brown who was the first customer but that's exactly what happens so what comes of this is cusack explains what's going on craig explains to maxine and you know he's just fucking going nuts about it he's insane and like this is the greatest thing ever so she's like oh well it's like a drug so we can package it up and sell it so they open a business our first customer as we just mentioned is there at this point just backtracking a second lottie i think is kind of getting suspicious of what craig is doing at work or you know what it is he's really doing so he takes her down and shows her you know what's up the the malkovich brain tunnel there and so she goes in and she's in his brain at one point when maxine calls right that's her urging him to go on the date with her correct 
Yes. So, yeah. so two things. One, do you think that Maxine calls because she knows that Lottie is going to be in, in Malkovich's brain when she calls? Because that, that's what I thought. I'm sure that's what our writer and director wanted us to, you know, jump to the conclusion of. But uh, And then the second thing, which is the one that annoys me, is that Cameron Diaz actually manages to mind control Malkovich to where he agrees to go on a date with Maxine. Right? But she's not a puppeteer. I mean, later on in the movie, they established that John Cusack can control Malkovich because he's a puppeteer. But all all Cameron Diaz does in this movie is take care of animals. So I, I don't see how that skill translates into being able to mind control Malkovich. I want an explanation, damn it. I was about to say, if you're asking me for like clarity on the the minutia of this film, then you know, you're gonna need a new co-host because I ain't I ain't got it for you. <laughs> But on this date, though, I did want to call out R.I.P. Uh, Stanford from Sex and the City makes a cameo. And it's, there's a lot of really non-PC dialogue that's, you know, it's pretty funny the way it's delivered and whatnot. But uh, nothing that you or I is going to repeat here. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So this is where the movie bites more they can chew, I think. Because so far it's being a very uh, quirky, weird comedy that's just kind of. Well, I'm not going to take anything seriously. But then they, they kind of start dabbling with the, in the subject of sexual identity. And I think that maybe we just didn't take that as seriously back at the, you know, at the end of the 90s. Whereas like now we, we all talk about it and we, you know, it's like America and the rest of the world kind of decided to try to figure this out. So watching this movie that's made at the end of the 90s and seeing Cameron Diaz kind of like casually like the movie treats it as a joke right that she she went into malkovich's head a couple times and now she's come out deciding that that she wants to be a man and and cusack is kind of dismissive about it and Catherine keener finds it i guess attractive intriguing and it was i i just felt like you needed more mature filmmakers to handle if, if this is where you're going to take the story that you need somebody that's taking it a little more seriously than these guys are just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I think that the the ingredients are there to make a movie that is actually profound about how we perceive our own sexuality and how it, it can be very fluid depending on the circumstances. But this movie is not it. <laughs> this is, I think that they would have been better off just staying with the with the dumb jokes about uh, John Malkovich's career. Yeah, it's and it's also like by the end of it, completely discarded. So it, in a sense, it really doesn't go anywhere, you know. Right. It, it's not like yeah, you're right that <laughs> the aspect that aspect of Cameron Diaz is replaced, I guess, by just her liking Maxine, and that's it. it which is weird because right at the at the beginning of you know when this happens, it's not that she's attracted to Maxine. It's just that she likes being Malkovich. But by the end of the movie, she's over. Like, at some point, she stopped liking being Malkovich. That stopped being important. And what becomes important is this obsession with Maxine, who's, by the way, let us remind you, a terrible person. Real piece of shit. Yeah. So now, through the vessel of John Malkovich, they're competing for Maxine. Um, it starts initially as just the two of them, you know, in the, in their human form. Uh, you know, not utilizing the precog that is John Malkovich, just them as their at their base level, their shoot identities. They're just trying to like vie for her attention and her affection. They have this dinner where they have her over, and they both try to make moves on her. And it, it 
when I say the term white people shit, it's like we're we're starting to peak here. You know, we're starting to redline. <laughs> the audio is starting to crack because the levels are getting so high. And she tells Lottie, you know, I'm falling for you and I really, you know, want you, but only as John. And so there's this love blooming, but they have to take this innocent man and use his brain and body to achieve it. It's... um. I don't know. I'm not I wasn't to the point of being annoyed yet, but I I did find myself just like, come on. What are we doing here? Is this your partner? She's pretty. I had to do the Malkovich ride again, you know? Would you pay $200 for this experience? By the way, cuz that's what they're charging. And that's $200 in, you know, late 90s money. So would that be $200 would in this situation you're posing would it be John Malkovich or can I pick who it is or is it no, no, you're W or Brown. You just they just told you it's fifteen minutes in Jamalkovich's head. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. The <laughs> the concept of that seems wild. I don't know. I've done stupid shit with two hundred dollars before. Why not? <laughs> I think that uh if you talk yourself past the the risk, like the, the you know, the idea of well, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know if it's safe. But it, so you do it once just to see what it's like. The real question is, do you do it again? Do you become one of those people that just comes back once a week with $100 because you want to spend 15 minutes uh, in Malkovich's head? Th- that's where, you know, I don't understand why you would do it a second time. Because it's like, what if you, like, jump in when he's in the middle of doing... What if he's taking a nap when you jump in? <laughs> you just wait the $200 to be inside Joe Malkovich's head while he's sleeping. Or if he's, like, cranking Rod and you're like, oh, man. Oh. <laughs> Well, the this. first time that uh, Cameron Diaz teleports into his head, he's taking a shower, and apparently she found that very pleasurable. <laughs> it's true. Now, all of this that we're talking about is making Craig very, I was going to say despondent, but that's not the word, angry. He's just pissed off, and you know everything he wanted is falling apart. So he goes and gets a gun, because it's America, and then holds his wife hostage and puts her in a cage. <laughs> because uh, it's America. <laughs> As you do, locks her in a cage with um. Oh man, what the monkey was so cute. I forget his name. It was like Eugene or something like that. Elijah. Elijah. There it is. Not Eugene. Elijah, who eventually saves her, but she's caged up with him as he takes off and jumps into Malkovich's brain. It's starting to like, you know, with all these customers and everything, it's starting to break his head, and he's you know kind of <laughs> short circuiting in many ways. He pays a visit to his friend Charlie Sheen at one point, who's rocking just unreal sideburns and explains, you know, <laughs> what's going on. And Charlie Sheen just he immediately attributes it to weed or something, right? He's like, you were just stoned, man. Yeah. When was the last time you saw Charlie Sheen in a movie? That's one of the first things I immediately thought of. I was like, when's the last time I saw him in like a serious movie? Because I remember he did like, he was in one of those, the last scary movies and like nothing that should be taken seriously. Right. And... So, yeah, it was kind of jarring. Right? Because he shows up like like you're supposed to recognize him as a big deal, which I guess in the late 90s he, he was. I mean, I don't want to be mean to Charlie Sheen, but let's say like 20, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, somebody watches being John Malkovich and that'll be the, the head scratcher. We're like, who is this guy? Am I supposed to know Charlie Sheen? It is fascinating, like as a cautionary tale of how you know quickly you can fall from grace, that type of thing. Yeah, he's there. He shows back up in the end. It's it's funny, I guess. Um, but eventually, Malkovich 
figures out there's someone in his head. And then how does he, oh, he follows Maxine, right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. And the funniest part in the movie, Real Talk Contrarian's Corner, I lost my fucking mind. His disguise is he's just John Malkovich, <laughs> but he's got sunglasses and an I Heart New York hat on. Yep. Uh, and he sneaks into the building this way and he basically follows the crowd of people to see what's going on. And he asks, you know, what's the line for whatever and they explain it to him. And he just fucking flips out tackles someone at the front of the line yells at john cusack and says he wants to try it out and then he goes into his own mind and julio what can we say here we get john malkovich with just a stellar rack we get him in (laughs) all kinds of wardrobes it's what happens here does it does this break the system is this the most iconic sequence from the movie the malkovich malkovich sequence I, i think so Right, like I, I think that that was if somebody, you know, if you brought it up back when it first came out, this was the one that people talked about. Yeah. Like, hey, did you watch Ben Malkovich? And then just go Malkovich, Malkovich. Cards uh, on the table. I always think of him getting hit in the head with the can, going fuck. That's like <laughs> what I always think of when I think of this movie. But that's because you are a more elevated kind of customer, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, this is just. I mean, there's no logic to it. There's no explanation, right? It's just, well, this is what happens, I guess, when you go... I mean, Cusack says it. What happens when a man goes into his own portal? And then Catherine Keener says, I guess we'll see. And then we do see. It's just... There's no rhyme or reason to what happens. It's just a whole bunch of John Malkovich's repeating his name over and over. It's it's bizarre, but I don't think that it adds anything, any sort of meaning <laughs> to the story, to what's going on. It, he could have gone into a, a white room where nothing is happening and the story plays the exact same way. Yeah. It's a sensory overload. I, I do like that uh, when he comes out of it, he he finally sounds like the Malkovich I know. When he goes, it's my head, Schwartz. <laughs> I will see you in court. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, we have the line from Q Sacri's like, how do you know I won't see what you're seeing me in court? What are we doing, guys? <laughs> so we get the monkey flashback that was referenced in, in which Elijah eventually realizes, you know, how he was captured and this woman rescued him. So he saves her. It is so fucking cute. He gives her a kiss and stuff, too. I think that's a little bit earlier, but it's it's adorable. Um, just everything about this is falling apart. Malkovich's brain is like short circuiting. Uh, once Lottie is free, she goes and visits with Dr. Lester, who earlier in the film at a dinner party or just a dinner at her house stumbled upon this room where it looked like just an obsessed fan, but someone who had been tracking the life and, you know, physical growth and progress of John Malkovich. So, Without her telling him, I know something's up or you have something to do with this, she tries to just come on kind of coy, be like, I have this obsession with John Malkovich. And, you know, quickly it's like, oh, you figured it out, that type of thing. And then he gets out like a pamphlet and we just, (laughs) Julio, I'm going to rely on you again to explain this to, you know, myself and our listening public here. Because this is the point. My note just says, LOL, what is this? Because we just go into this insane, like, John Malkovich is a portal for immortality. What's going on? <laughs> uh, see, this is proof that 
sometimes it's better to just not explain things. I know we we, we said about we, that's the point. I could like say that I was having fun up until this point, and you know, it's just kind of like ah, oh, this is quirky or whatever. But then it just spirals out of control. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's unnecessary because I guess there there are two ways that you can end this story, right? You can just keep it complete lunacy and you don't explain anything. And it's just, you know, whatever ending you arrive to, you really did have to work because you've already established this movie is bananas. So whatever ending you throw at us, we're not going to have any other option but to accept it because that's just <laughs> we know what movie you're watching. Or option number two is you drop 50 pages worth of mythology right here where we're about to head into the third act. And it just it drags the movie down. Uh, as far as I understand it, this guy, Dr. Lester, is the guy from the orientation video, the guy that's referenced the orientation on the orientation video. So he's like a pirate, a captain from, you know, centuries ago, I guess. And he found the portal. And the portal didn't always lead to John Malkovich's head. It just leads to someone's head who becomes his his vessel. When that person that the portal that's leads right. to turns 44, that's when they're ripe. And then he can he goes through the portal and then he stays there for good and he takes over the body. If he goes after they turn 44, then they're they're overripe, I guess, and then he can't control them. Now, how does he know this? <laughs> Because it's not like he found a manual and, 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 you know, he read it. And if this had already happened, then he wouldn't be talking to her. You know what I mean? Like if he had gone into somebody's... Decades of trial and error, my friend. <laughs> but but the way he tells it, there's no room for error. If you go at the wrong time... Oh, you're right. You're right. You're, yeah. yeah. He says, like, I'll be buried by his subconscious and wouldn't be able to, you know, come out. How does he know this? Especially because he's the only person that's been doing it, right? And this is the first time with John Malkovich, who might be vessel number five or whatever. Uh, with John Malkovich, he says he's been feeling so lonely as Dr. Lester has been the only consciousness in this body that he's going to bring all his friends into Malkovich's head. So it's him and a bunch of other old people. And they're going to go on the, at midnight on his 44th birthday and they're going to they're all they're all going to live inside Malkovich's head and take over, and they they're going to to control Malkovich. Uh, <laughs> Not unlike uh, girl on the third floor. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> that that is that is a correlation in that uh, CM Punk movie. <laughs> Malkovich. Malkovich. So yeah, they have to enter Malkovich's mind. At midnight on his 44th birthday. If they don't, then I think they miss their window and then the portal leads to the next the next vessel, which would be a baby. And if they go in when that person, when the vessel is a baby, then they get trapped in there forever because they, they will be in the subconscious. Um, yeah. Either. Yeah. There's no way. He, I don't know how he knows this. You know, it's he, not, he never explains it. Point being, this isn't fun. Like no. the movie, like had a little bit of fun and levity to it, and then it gets to this point, and it's like, what the fuck, man? No, it's homework because you yeah. know that he's telling you this <laughs> because it's gonna you're gonna have to remember it later in order for the for the story to make sense. Yep. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, it, it's a drag. I I I didn't have anything against Doctor Lesser until he started giving me a history lesson. It's a, it's a bummer. <laughs> how does he? Cameron Diaz should have been like, how do you know all this? And he would have said, because Charlie Kaufman told me so. Because I am John Malkovich. <laughs> Craig has figured out how to basically hang around in Malkovich's brain. 
And for us, the viewing public, it results in this insane dance scene where John Malkovich has like an entire fucking duvet wrapped around him like a a shower towel and then dances around the room, throws a candle holder at a mirror, I think, and kicks a table. It's this for me at this point, the movie was just really falling apart. It it was just what I said for a a moment there. I really seemed to be. almost able to have a good time with what was happening. And then not only did it become overly convoluted, but then the shit that is, you know, we talk about this all the time. You know, the people making this think this is going to be so funny. And then we sit here and watch it. And it is what we call cringe. It is cringe. I felt bad for John Malkovich because this felt like something that they came up with on the day, you you know, they were shooting and, and then one of these fuckers were like, what if you danced? Because remember how John Cusack could make his puppets dance? Wouldn't it be great if you danced? And Malkovich, he's already shot half the movie. He's a producer. He's too invested in the project to say no. So he just has to eat it and do this dance. And obviously, he's not a dancer. And that's fine. He's, you know, not everybody can dance. He, it's the Not cringiest- everyone's Travolta. Nope, nope. <laughs> Which is... Funny you say that because I remember way back in the day when we talked about Travolta and how he is unusually cool for a white man when he's dancing. And Malkovich is on the other end of the spectrum. He is incredibly uncool when he's dancing. And it's just awkward. And I I, I didn't want to see it. And it goes on forever. Um, We should point out, by the way, that by now, Catherine Keener is irredeemable. Because she knows that John Cusack is controlling. Because at first he was fooling her. He was making her think that he was Lottie when really it was him inside John Malkovich. Mm -hmm. But by now she knows. Because Lottie called to let her know. And then she knowingly uh, told Lottie to get lost just so she could be with with Cusack. Because she knows that Cusack is better at controlling John Malkovich. So she is even a worse person than she was before. Uh, I... I remember, because I'd seen this movie before, I was like, I remember that they end up together. Cameron Diaz and Catherine Keener end up together. I was like, how does he, how do they manage to save this relationship? Because as, as this movie was going, I was like, "There's, it's unsalvageable. And uh, what the answer is that they don't. They just think that they did. They try to sell you this thing, this, this love story that's anything but. Sad. <laughs> Trump, Jeff, Sad. So Craig, inhibiting Malkovich's brain, decides that he's going to switch gears to being a, a puppeteer. He's a puppeteer now. He's no longer an actor as of this moment type thing. And we go to eight months later. We see that uh, Maxine is pregnant, nearly fully developed, it appears. And <laughs> Malkovich has an insane comb over. <laughs> and, you know, you, you typically when you see X amount of time later, you think mm-hmm. we're wrapping up. Oh, we're, no. <laughs> we, we're not wrapping up here we actually go to like a full-on uh you know in a video game you'd call it an fmv we get this fucking full motion video it's like a show within a show that type of thing it's the e true hollywood story or whatever it is oh it about, is the uh american arts and culture presents john yes, Horatio uh, malkovich dance of disparate disillusionment i'm reading from the criterion because that's another special feature they have the whole documentary oh. thing here that is amazing. Um, yes, that's what we get, including a just outstanding Sean Penn cameo. But did you catch a more important cameo right before Sean Penn shows up? Who's that? Uh, sitting. They're like at some awards show where uh, 
Malkovich is performing with his puppets and then they cut to the audience is clapping. Winona Ryder, our beloved Winona from the summer of yes. Winona, sitting right next to Andy Dick. That, at first, I was like, I wonder if they just took that from another award show, but then I was trying to figure out where it would have been from. But fortunately with this movie, you have a lot of downtime to think about things. Um, <laughs> Every time yeah. they focus on puppets doing anything, you can just go get a coffee. I mean, it's fun, but it's just taking up time. And after it's over, this leads into it's uh, Horatio's 44th birthday, I think is what they say. And he has this big show where now he has like a fucking full human sized marionette that he operates uh, that dances on stage with some uh, other dancers. He returns back with his birthday cake and he finds that Maxine's been taken. Not unlike our dear Sherry Moon in the Lords of Salem (laughs) has been taken only in this case, not, you know, for sacrifice to. Awaken the Witch Coven of Salem. In this case, it's um, just as kind of collateral. They even say, we're not going to do anything to her. We're not going to kill her. We just want him to get out of Malkovich's brain, and we're just trying to, you know, he's not going to call our bluff, that type of thing. But he does. Uh, (laughs) He does at first, but then he, like, you know, wises up because he realizes he can't, he wants to be Malkovich, but he can't just, like, continue on the way he is. So... In a shocking final twist for the way this movie's written, for all the progressive things that you know you could argue it did, and the subjects it covered that were kind of, you know, different in the time of 1999, uh, we get right back to square one, and that's that all women hate each other, and <laughs> Cameron Diaz can't help but try to kill Catherine Keener for you know taking John and. Uh, she has the gun, right? That uh, yeah. John Cusack threatened and, her with earlier, and she literally says, "If no, if I can't have you, nobody can, or nobody will." That's like a, th- that's a, a joke line. That's something that we say when we're making fun of a movie. <laughs> and then, with nowhere to escape to, she chases um, Maxine, runs off into the tunnel, and this would be her first time getting in there. And then uh, she's quickly followed by Lottie. And they land in Malkovich's subconscious. And we get like, at this point in the movie, it's just like, let's fucking go home. And (laughs) now we get this really depressing tour through the life of John Malkovich where he was bullied and no one liked him. And, uh, you know, girls thought he was creepy. And this is all intertwined with Cameron Diaz shooting a gun at Catherine Keener. And it's, what are we doing, man? I'm trying to remember how the chronology, this is happening inside Malkovich's head while John Cusack is... Also in there, getting into a, a fight at a bar? I believe that's what we're supposed to take from this, yes. So he didn't notice that Catherine Keener and Cameron Diaz were trying to kill each other inside his head? I guess not. I mean, I've, I've had to rely on you for a lot of this movie, so I, I, it's just where we are. I think uh, that the, the, they're counting on us just being so exasperated by by all the nonsense that you're not going to ask any questions. <laughs> yeah, They're counting on us to not try. <laughs> it's the rise of Skywalker. Well, you're here. So what are you going to do about it? Really? <laughs> I dare you. Are they you to leave and ask for your money back? <laughs> I love you so much. No. Why did you have to hurt me like that? I'm sorry. Lord. I guess I loved you too. They eventually end up on the New Jersey Turnpike, and this is, you know, the proverbial threw my hands up in the air uh, 
Catherine Keener informs Cameron Diaz that she, in fact, is the father of her baby as she conceived when she was in the head of John Malkovich. So it doesn't actually belong to Craig. How does she know Uh, this? I I don't know. I'm not going to dare speculate (laughs) how, you know, a vagina works when I don't have one. So, Well, I can tell you how science works. I mean, there's a way to determine paternity. But in in this case, both whether it was Cusack inside Malkovich or Cameron Diaz inside Malkovich, the the DNA that the, the science would still be it'd be the same. It's it's Malkovich's sperm, so it doesn't make any sense. There's no way for Catherine Keener to know when she got pregnant in this case, right? Because it's not like oh she only had sex with Malkovich when Cameron Diaz was inside. She also had sex with Malkovich when. John Cusack was inside. So how does she know? She There's no way of knowing. It's bullshit. And Cameron Diaz should have called her on that. Yeah, man. I got nothing for you. I'm on your side on that. Uh, during this, though, is when Craig realizes, you know, I need to get back to Maxine and also, you know, give these old fogies what they want. So he just willingly is able to kind of just drop out of Malkovich's head and you get... John Malkovich gets this kind of shimmy in his in his stance, uh, like uh, Michael in Halloween Ends when he kills someone again for the first time, and he's like, like shaking off like a dog, and <laughs> Craig lands, and then goes to chase his ex wife and I, I guess wife now, and tells Maxine, "Look, I I came back for you. I love you." And <laughs> Cameron Diaz yells, "Fuck off, Craig!" and Maxine tells the cab driver, whoever they're hitchhiking with, you know, he's not with us. And they take off, and I don't know what the the message is there. I I don't know either. I this is it's so weird that it's really hard to pick up what what it's trying to say about you know it's what what I was saying earlier. Once you introduce the ideas of like, all right, we're gonna we have the potential here to explore sexuality. Uh, through this artifice of the portal inside John Malkovich's head. Well, you kind of have the obligation not to see it through, and this movie doesn't. Instead, there's just it just keeps throwing weird stuff at you. So you get to the end, and I was like, yeah, you're right. I don't know what it's saying, uh, that some people are bad and get away with it, and some people are bad and don't. <laughs> yeah, and then... And again, what we've been saying the whole time is like, what's the message here that Catherine Keener gets the happy ending? Mm -hmm. Manipulate people and treat them like shit. All right. There you go. Because that's the problem with that with that time jump. When you go seven months later and now she's pregnant and she's looking at this doll that looks like Cameron Diaz and apologizes to her. I needed to see this process of her becoming a better person or realizing that she missed Cameron Diaz instead of. Just doing it the easy way, right? Seven months later, oh, she's a better person. Uh-huh. That's no, I mean, you, you need to sell it to me much better than that. So, yeah, we get to the end, and she and Cameron Diaz have a daughter, and they look happy. They're playing by the pool. And I just, I feel like this is not earned at all. And then we find to close the movie that Emily, their daughter, in a terrifying turn of events, John Cusack is now in her brain, trapped. Because he went in when she was a baby. Because that was the last thing he said. He's as they were leaving him in the, you know, in the middle of the road. He said, "I'm gonna go back into Malkovich's head and, and I'll win you back, Maxine." But of course, he hadn't been in the room when Doctor Lester was explaining how the mythology works. So he went into the portal after midnight and got stuck in the 
brain of the at the time unborn baby funny how things turn out <laughs> oh that's okay that you just piece that together for me well to be fair i've seen this movie more more times than you have that makes total sense i guess i i just kind of wasn't sure what i what i took away from that uh but yeah terrifying ending um or even we more s- terrifying we find out that uh Dr. Lesser and his friends, who are now living inside John Malkovich, are going to eventually take over Emily's yep. body, brain, and everything. Yep, because we conclude the movie with Charlie Sheen showing up in a really bad bald cap, just so you know, <laughs> ha, 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 And we see that John Malkovich has ended up with Florence. And yeah, to your point, he says, you know, I found a way for us to live to forever. You, me, Flo, maybe even Gary Sinise, he says, <laughs> and which I don't know what the relevance of that was. But hey, who am I to say? They're, uh, and, they're in the same uh, theater company, Steppenwolf. I think they, they actually like name drop it in the, in the Malkovich documentary. Anyway, exactly like you said, he tells Charlie Sheen we discovered this and we see the, the new wall that's tracking the progress of Emily and that. You know, she's going to be the new the new portal. And then the lights come up and the ushers tell us to go home. <laughs> There's nothing after the credits. You can go. I think we squeezed this lemon. We got as much juice out of it as we could. So let's, uh, let's move this on to real talk. Let's hop in the portal and try to see this through uh, each other's eyes, I guess. Real talk is just going to be uh, the two of us going back and forth. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. <laughs> Malkovich, Malkovich. Yeah. <laughs> Malkovich, 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 Malkov